I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello again. I've taken six months off to regroup and to recharge, and the break has been good. Now, before we start today's show, I have an announcement. As some of you will know, you can contribute or donate to the project by going to the HowJamaicaConquerTheWorld.com website and clicking on the donate button. And while I've had a few contributions that way, which is absolutely great, I've decided that what I really need to do is a Kickstarter. If you don't know what Kickstarter is, it's a way of crowdsourcing funding for projects, and you can help the project by kickstarting it by donating on kickstarter.com for as little as £10 or for our American friends that's around about $15 so that I can realise my dream of the podcast truly going global. So please if you've enjoyed what I've been doing for the past year and you can spare £10 or a little bit more please go to kickstarter and hit search just type in how Jamaica into the search on kickstarter and donate what you can. And just to let you know, the Kickstarter will be live on April the 2nd. Now, just before we start today's show, I must say a big thank you to Wayne Chang, Claire Verger and Neville Douglas for their recent contributions. After today's show, we have some great listener questions and some other news and announcements. Today's show is brought to you by Kazuri, designers of cool bags for laptops, iPads, iPhones and more. Check out our colourful Kazuri Sun Stripes collection inspired by the Jamaican sun and sea. Visit kazuri.com. That's C-A-S-A-U-R-I.com. Where style and technology click. This is the story of how one small island conquered the world. Jamaican Patwa. And a fair start, a Safa Pound. Usain Bolt is also out well. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt! It's a story of music, sport and style. How its rhythms, athletes and language went global. Pull up, pull up. This is how Jamaica conquered the world. My name is Michael Riley, belt M-Y-K-A-E-L. My name is Glenn Brown and I'm in Birmingham, England. Jess Collins, I work at Birmingham City University in Birmingham. I specialise in music heritage and I'm also the founder of the Birmingham Music Archive. I'm also the co-exec producer of the film Made in Birmingham, Reggae, Punk and Bhangra. My name is Michael Goldwasser. I am a record producer, primarily with Easy Star Records, based in New York City. My name is Dennis Seaton. I'm the lead singer of Music for Youth. I live in Birmingham, England. 
Birmingham is a city of some 1.1 million, it's the second largest city in the United Kingdom, and it has a, a long and a sustained tradition of multiculturalism. First, sort of migrants into the city were the Irish, and I'm a sort of second generation Irish. The ex Commonwealth and Empire communities started arriving in the 50s. The community set around inner city areas, so in Birmingham, like Hansworth, which is probably the most famous. I came to England in 1961. For three years, I was a trainee fitter. You had the Jamaican communities coming to live in Britain in the 50s and 60s, and at that time, it was very difficult for that community to access entertainment or cultural spaces, mainly because of colour bars. So they needed a place to congregate. Because they couldn't access cultural spaces in the, in the city, they had to create their own. Local pubs became a, a really focal point, but they obviously closed at a certain time. So the blues parties or the shabines started up. But you know about this party by word of mouth. First of all, people would tell you they're having a party. The established clubs didn't play us out of music, and some of those clubs, you weren't welcome. So to get what you want, you do what you like, by having your own music and your own atmosphere, your own friends and families. You didn't pay to go into a party. You'd buy food and drinks. The music was always Jamaican music. It started off with the whole blow beat, then it changed to ska, and it worked its way up till it became the reggae. And it's always 90% reggae and the hard black American music. Hardly any English music was played, not even the Beatles. They started to develop then into clubs. You'd have clubs like Bunny Johnson's, the Rialto uh, on the Soho Road. You'd have Tasha's on the Soho Road, the Frontline, the Monte Carlo Club, the Porsche Club over in Small Heath. Then you'd start creeping into town, so you'd have the Cedar Club, um, a place called Constitution Hill. And these were black entrepreneurs working with white entrepreneurs to say, we need to start taking these out of the houses because we can probably, to be honest, we can probably charge more money. have Brian Griffiths' shop on Grove Lane, you'd have Summit, Don Chrissy's in another part of the city called Sparkle. They would be receiving the latest Jamaican records and they would be played out in the club. So the record shop became a really important cultural space. I would spend roughly three to five pounds on records when I go into a record shop. I remember a single in those days cost six shillings and eight pence, which was six and eight pence was a third of a pound. So if we get three singles for a pound. Jamaicans like records that have a good beat, good bass. In those days, the quality of gram would make a lot of difference. Blue spot was the gram in those days. And if you had a blue spot and a good reggae record, you had a good music. So we always try to get that blue spot that make the reggae record sounds good. Reggae was a really important part of our musical identity. Its influence on, on Bhangra music, the influence of white music on black musicians, the influence of white music on Bhangra. Sound systems were very important. They were taking place in London as well, but in Birmingham, the most uh, notorious, and I use the word notorious as a, a term of endearment, you know, as the better ones were the, the were, were Farsi sound system. 
the Mafia sound system. People like Captain Boogie and Chicken George. Captain Boogie wouldn't really be aligned to, to sound systems. They'd hop from one to, to another. And then you had the Saxo sound system as well, which is another huge and important. There's a continuing dialogue between the London community about who was the be- the baddest and the best. Obviously, Birmingham was. The sound system started to die out really in the, in the mid 70s, and what you started to get really was second generation Jamaican children born here, and they obviously started mixing, uh, you know, going to school with other cultures, mainly white and, and Asian. They'd obviously be exposed to the music of that time, and that gave rise really, I think, in the in the 70s to one of the most fertile periods of reggae in this country in Birmingham. It was huge. It really was massive. And you can't ignore the impact that Steel Pulse have had on, on British reggae and undoubtedly they are one of the biggest and most successful and well-known groups. We all went to the same junior school. We all went to the same secondary school. So we knew each other growing up. The initial members of the band were like families, like brothers. We're in and out of each other's house. One day at school, we were singing Bob Marley tracks, and none of us played instruments at the time. And it was like, we should form a band. But because of Jamaican parenting, some of us knew that we couldn't go back into the house and say, we're going to form a band, we're going to be musicians performing reggae. That whole notion in their head meant that Rasta reggae equates to drugs, crime, prison, death. It was a road to nowhere. And parents were very protective. So the whole notion of becoming a member of a reggae band and doing music, which they associated with drugs, in that climate was certainly my house. You couldn't have said something worse. So it wasn't said. The Jamaican community in Birmingham was much closer knit than the Jamaican community in London. So you felt Jamaican. We had strong Jamaican accents and we worked hard on our Jamaican accents. I can remember at one point, it wasn't until the screening of How Do They Come where we realised we didn't have (laughs) such great Jamaican accents. Within the early days of Steel Pulse, everyone wrote on the same song. So someone might come up with a lyric or a melody and everyone would contribute. The theme was life, it was social commentary, it was about what was happening around us. Our aspirations from Birmingham was to be better than London. So the bands that existed in London, from your Matumbis to your Aswads, your Black Slates, we had to be better than those bands. So we just dismissed them. We're not even going to compete with them, we're going to compete with Bob Marley. Bands like Steel Pulse and Oswald were just something a little different about them. I was a bit of an Anglophile in terms of my other musical taste. Learned pretty quickly that they were British and began to explore UK reggae. And Steel Pulse was definitely one of my favorite bands then and as is now. Our experience was growing up in Birmingham. Our experience was British. It was 
England. None of us have been to Jamaica. Specifically, a song like Handsworth Revolution, which came out, I believe, in 1978, before a lot of the political unrest in Handsworth, really made me stop and think. The lyrics were very obviously about a very local situation that also had global implications. David Hines was singing about what was happening in Handsworth, which then I learned was Birmingham. So I was very into Steel Pulse, but at that same time, I was also listening to the beat, and I found that they were from Birmingham, and they also, you know, they had sang a lot about issues that were important to me, listening very British about them. One of the reasons I got into reggae was not just because I loved the music, but also because I loved the message of a lot of, of reggae from the 70s, which was looking for social justice, decrying what was going on in the world. The statements that they were making, a song like Ku Klux Klan, I have a feeling that an American band, even though it's about an American manifestation of racism, I don't think an American band would have made that song. I think it took an outsider's point of view to look at what was going on to create a song like Ku Klux Klan, which then became one of their signature pieces in terms of live performance. I'm sure they shocked by having people dress up as Klansmen. We got a reputation that if you step on our stage, we're going to fight you. And the Ku Klux Klan hoods that I made was part of that militant statement. I mean, at one point, we all wore hoods. <laughs> so the band would turn around, you got seven black guys to put on hoods, and your audience is totally white. And it would silence the room, because they didn't know what's going to happen next. They recognized the hoods, but it's not kind of on the wrong heads. There was what was actually happening to us, which was the police, the National Front, the government, the skinheads. Songs like Ku Klux Klan came about, but it's actually talking about walking down a street in Birmingham. This is not Alabama, and you'd be attacked in the same way. For us, it was just as real as being lynched, and in some cases, it was the police. Handsworth Revolution, their first album, made a huge impression on me. And then a little later in the 80s, I introduced Pato Banton, who was also from Handsworth, for a fan who it couldn't get much better, which was there was a song featuring Pato Banton, Ranking Roger from the beat, and they were backed by the musicians from Steel Pulse. In my teenage mind in the 80s, I thought Birmingham was kind of the center of the reggae universe outside of Jamaica. You know, it, it kind of amazed me to find out that very few other people in America even knew where Birmingham or Handsworth were. Right now, now things getting warm up here, so we're gonna slow things down. Because a lot of people talking about nuclear weapons. UB40 are for me an amazing band, and I think I feel feel sorry for them, but I think they're they're, they're massively misunderstood, and I'll, I'll take a couple of minutes to try and explain this. UB40. Uh, 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 1977-78 on the back end of punk, and they're you know, an amazingly multicultural brand. They were formed in the Mosley and Borsaith areas. Their first couple of albums, for me, are some of the greatest music, forget reggae, some of the best albums going, particularly signing off. I think what happened with UB40 is that their third or fourth album, Labour of Love, was the high-end to their favourite music, to their favourite reggae stars. Uh, what isn't articulated about UB40, those songs that they cover and they continue to cover, and that's where they get their critical panning, is that they brought massive exposure to those reggae artists. The, the royalties that those uh, artists get and that they include when they tour, it's just a massive bit of gratitude, I think. I think it shows that they understand the roots of their music. They've never tried to rip those artists off. They've always been, and they remain to this day, politically active. And you can't say that about a band who sold something in the region. I think it's 170 million albums. area that I grew up in, in Birmingham, is a place called Neachels. For me, Neachels was quite exotic, but <laughs> it's very inner city. My friends in Birmingham were not just black like me, but I also had white friends, a lot of Irish friends, because Birmingham had a big Irish community. We just ended up playing a lot of football. The secondary school I went to was Doniston Manor, and this is where I met in the summer of 1980, junior, and then we used to hang out together, and that's where it all started. Junior, Junior and I became best friends. He said to me, look, my dad's putting a band together. I'm going to play drums. Patrick's going to play bass. I was really? And at the time, I used to do a bit of singing. I'd gone to the very first rehearsal. Junior and I were best friends. We were kind of inseparable, really. And uh, that's where I got to meet Michael and Calvin. So I sat in on that very first rehearsal, thinking, Junior's my best friend. I'd really like to join. So then Junior said to his dad, look, dad, if we need a lead singer, Dennis can sing. So Fred, 
He said, oh, you can't sing. So he started playing and I couldn't sing the songs. And he said, you can't sing. Come back when you can't sing. And Fred was a very serious man. He was very strict with the music, but it made us better or made them better first. So I didn't join the band for about 18 months. My final chance came when the band had done a recording called Political Agenda with Fred and it was played by John Peel and then an A&R guy heard it and said, I gotta chase this band up. Once you rewind. came about because the band was actually started out with Fred singing lead, then you had Calvin, Michael, Junior and Patrick playing instruments and Fred played lead guitar and it didn't look right. This band's called Musical Youth. This man's 36, he's got these young boys. That time Calvin was 10, Judy was 14, and it was kind of, what? This ain't musical youth. So the record company went, they said, you have to find a lead singer. Now how I got in, Junior said, look, we're looking for a new lead singer. Do you fancy doing it? He went to the music teacher, told the music teacher, we need to hold an audition for a singer. Can we do it here, sir? And he said, yes, put a, a, a note up on the wall. Well, I was the only one who turned up, wasn't I? After signing our record deal, the uh, A&R guys, they got a show for us with Culture Club. When we performed past the Kochi, there's about 2,000 people, 2,500 people in the venue. They went absolutely crazy. And the a and saw this and he said, listen, this song past the Kochi, is there any way you could change the lyric? Because you're singing about smoking drugs here. We went away to record the demo for the album. When we was in the studio, we're standing there going, well, what can we change it to? Dochi. school we all decided we're not going to tell anybody in the school about our single because if it's a flop <laughs> we don't want anybody laughing at us and at that time the charts came out on a tuesday and on that afternoon we were leaving to go to london to start recording the album that same afternoon we were leaving the charts came out we're number 26 in the charts there's a buzz going around the school we're not there the next day so nobody could talk to us we're in london recording the new album a week later we looked in the newspaper we see, well, music use number seven. We get into the studio and we get a call. Listen, guys, you're number one. And we're like, no, we're not. Yes, you are. No, we're not. We've looked in the paper, we're number seven. So then we go and listen to the radio. The guy says, look, this record has jumped from number 26 to number one. It's musical youth from Pastor Dutchie. That's when it just went absolutely nuts. very next day we were scheduled to go to Newcastle to do a TV show called Razzmatazz. We were shocked that they'd actually booked their airplane flight for us to fly from London to Newcastle. Wow look we're stars now we're flying and <laughs> we get to Newcastle airport before we get off the plane it's gone absolutely manic with press so then we spent the whole day doing Razzmatazz but in between the breaks we had to do press photo calls that razzmatazz we did that time we did it with the late great phil Lynott of thin lizzy and one of his band members he's a guitarist he said does the record company give you any money and we're like no so he said here you go and he gave us a fiver each <laughs> we were like wow five pounds what's this so yeah so that's how the day started for us as at number one
first time we went to Jamaica, the Jamaicans took us to their heart and said, look, you are us, we love you, welcome us with open arms, even though my parents are not from Jamaica. I never felt that I wasn't part of that diaspora, whilst also understanding the pop culture of the UK and how it worked. It's hard to say the size of the Afro-Caribbean and Jamaican communities in terms of population. Birmingham is on course to be probably the first majority black city and I would estimate that the, the Afro-Caribbean certainly population would be in the region of 250 to 300,000. I think when you take a city of this size, the communities coexist with our different cultures and we've learned and exchanged with each other. It's not a one-way process. As a city, I think we pride ourselves on the relative mix of cultures. Hi, this is Patsy. I'm in Canada and I, um, I'm a fan of reggae music, but I've always wondered, when is it that... What was the first song that was considered reggae? really love your site, um, love the podcast. Thanks. What was the first reggae record? Absolutely excellent question. Now, reggae is derived from Rocksteady and ska and kind of has its roots in a more traditional form of Jamaican music, Mento. Generally, the track which is considered to be the first reggae record was the Pioneer's 1968 track, Long Shot, though Lee Scratch Perry's Funny Boy is also kind of seen as one of these kind of transitional records which took us from an era of rock steady into the world of reggae. Now that kind of 1968 period to the early 70s is a somewhat of a confusing and a really beautiful one in terms of Jamaican music because if you think of something like the Harder They Come album by Jimmy Cliff which came out in 1973, a lot of those songs on there are actually rock steady records and not actually reggae. So from about 68 to the early 70s you have this transitional period where Reggae and Rocksteady are the two dominant forms of Jamaican popular music, but reggae slowly wins out, the tempo gets slower. One thing I didn't realise until doing the How Jamaica series is the Beatles' Obla Dee Obla Da is also a reggae record, and it's probably the first example of a rock group covering or doing a pastiche of reggae. Hi, Roy Fields. Leon from... London, my question to you would be, who are your podcasting heroes and who influenced you in making How Jamaica Conquered the World? Thank you. Top of my list in terms of inspiration, which really got me to do How Jamaica, would be Nate DeMeo's The Memory Palace. It's an absolutely beautiful podcast which just transports you to another place. His voice is absolutely hypnotic and his attention to production detail is a sight to listen to. So Nate DeMeo. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is something which I absolutely fell in love with when, when I heard that. Now the podcaster there is a guy called Clay Jenkinson and it's a very unusual setup. He gets in character to be President Thomas Jefferson and gets other people to ask him questions and it's a treatise on American politics, political philosophy and the very tone and the questions asked and the answers given can absolutely illuminated me and rekindled my interest in American politics. So definitely the Thomas Jefferson Hour was an inspiration for How Jamaica. And also, 
the world in a hundred objects. If there's been one podcast which has really got me excited, which has really inspired me in terms of brevity, I really do believe that less is more. It's actually that podcast and the vocal delivery and the information given in such an entertaining and accessible way was definitely a template for how Jamaica conquered the world. So there's your answers. Hi, this is Jeremy from Kuala Lumpur. I'm about to go to Jamaica for a vacation. Where would you recommend I visit? Most people go to the north coast starting from Negril all the way over to Port Antonio the north coast is a great place to go it's not all sun sea and sand you can go to the cockpit country over on the west side of the island where the maroons still live and you can find small towns like Falmouth which have this quaint Georgian splendor also you can go to Rose Hall so you can see where the famous white witch had her way with her slaves but any trip to Jamaica really should encompass a trip down to Kingston to really get the bustling heart of the island. If you'd like to pose a question to me, why don't you go onto the How Jamaica Conquered the World website, which is howjamaicaconquerdtheworld.com, and hit the red tab over on the right and simply ask a question. Now, the question can be absolutely anything to do with how I make the shows or any kind of facts or knowledge that you'd like about Jamaica or the diaspora. So why not give it a go? You can follow us on Twitter where we are at How Jamaica. You can follow us on Facebook where we are facebook.com forward slash How Jamaica. The email address is Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. Or you can pose any questions on our speak pipe where you simply go to How Jamaica Conquered the World and hit the red tab over on the right. Don't forget you can contribute to the project on kickstarter.com starting April the 2nd. Simply go on to kickstarter.com, go to search and type in how Jamaica. See you all next time. The vigilant amongst you will have noticed that I made a mistake. When I said that the Kickstarter starts on April the 2nd, of course I meant May the 2nd. So please head over to Kickstarter on May the 2nd and contribute to how Jamaica conquered the world. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.